I don't know, there was just something, and maybe I just, I kept started looking at pictures back from 1990 and it felt like the light was different than it is now. Probably because it was so much smoggier. And, you know, we didn't want to see Man's Chinese or Musso and Frank or right. Hall or the Griffith Observatory. We wanted places that were absolutely LA, but LA we hadn't seen. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director John Lee Hancock's new thriller, The Little Things. The film follows Deputy Sheriff Joe Deacon, who joins forces with Sergeant Jim Baxter to search for a serial killer terrorizing Los Angeles. The investigation uncovers disturbing secrets from Deacon's past that could threaten more than the case. In addition to The Little Things, Mr. Hancock's directorial credits include the feature films The Highwaymen, The Founder, Saving Mr. Banks, and The Blind Side. Mr. Hancock spoke with director Karen Kusama about filming The Little Things in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Karen Kusama, and I am here to moderate the Q&A with John Lee Hancock, who is going to talk about his latest film, The Little Things. Uh, John, it's so nice to see you. Karen, it's so nice to see you. Thank you for doing this. Of course, of course, my pleasure. Um, why don't we just jump in and talk about, uh, I know that the film had a very long gestation process. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how it came to be and all of its origins? Sure. As best I can remember, it's been so long <laughs> ago. Um, I believe I came up with the story um, in 1992, started sketching an outline and wrote it in 93. I remember that it was about the time that A Perfect World, that was, that was my first script that Clint Eastwood directed, was in prep and about to go into production. So somewhere in that wash of late 92 to early 94, mm. I imagined it and, and wrote this original script. It, it, it was kind of set up with several different directors through the 90s and it never quite got made. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I started directing uh, in earnest in 2000, Mark Johnson, our producer, uh, every few years would bug me and ask me about it because it had remained a script that, you know, that he liked a lot and that other people seemed to admire. So, um, you know, then, but I had little kids and I thought it was a really dark place to live for a couple of years. And so I kept pushing it away not wanting to read it for fear of, um, you know, what if I open it and it's really terrible. And I look back at the younger, my younger self and I'm ashamed. <laughs> but, uh, I, uh, finally the kids are off in college and I reread it and, and was pleased and, you know, much to my surprise and excitement, Warner Brothers, who owned it, um, wanted to make it. Wow. And so it's really interesting because the film lives in that early 90s time period mm -hmm. and I think is, is um, quite, quite different in a funny way. Like we, we don't necessarily think that early 90s is period, but at this point, it really is. It's quite different. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to keep it in the early 90s and what impact that had on the production in a way. Sure. Um, you know, when, it, when I wrote it, it was a contemporary piece and it became a piece when we made it. Um, so, yeah, there were conversations about maybe we should just make it contemporary because, one, you save some money. Um, you don't have to drag in as many old cars and, and from a costuming standpoint. And also, you know, as you know, once you get into post, you constantly see things, you go, that wasn't around in, in October 1990. It didn't come in until, and you've got to, you know, 
a multitude of voices who would tell you that, oh, well, the, uh, the crosswalk buttons were different then. Right. Kind of things. So you find yourself doing cleanup with the effects yep. uh, at the end. But I like the idea that this was a pre-DNA story um, mm -hmm. because it made it harder on the detectives. Mm -hmm. um, and I also liked that it was pre-cell phone, um, pre-CCTV, and it, everything was just harder for the detectives to do their job. And with these guys' journey, I was looking to really, really make it as hard as possible. And so, I don't know, there was just something, and maybe I just, I kept started looking at pictures back from 1990, and it felt like the light was different than it is now, probably because it was so much smoggier. Mm. Um, and we weren't looking for beautiful Southern uh, California, and uh, we're looking for places in Los Angeles, uh, you know, that we hadn't seen before, kind of like you did in Destroyer, to be honest. Mm. I mean, I took a, took a nod from you there, but- um, Thank you. And, you know, we didn't want to see Man's Chinese or Musso and Frank or right. Hall or the Griffith Observatory. We wanted places that were absolutely L.A., but L.A. we hadn't seen. I really liked that about the film, that there were locations that felt um, vivid and specific and very much like L.A., but just not the L.A. you, you see very often at all, but right. then also through that prism of of... 1992 or you know um the, the era in which it, it was taking place i thought that it had a really interesting grittiness because of that thank you yeah we we kind of leaned into uh hot overhead sun when it when it was there and mm -hmm. falling into shadows and um and and just i don't know embracing kind of bad neons Mm -hmm. um, we, we looked at the, you know, the neon noir, the American friend, and, mm -hmm. and saw all the, the lime greens and blues and stuff. And we didn't go as far as that, but where available and where we wanted to put them in, we just embraced the fact that they were kind of beautiful, but kind of haunting. Oh, yeah. And I think of the American friend as like such a great um, exploration of color that's a little almost... Um, moving toward toward rot and yeah. i thought that there were some really lovely interior i mean lovely i i mean beautifully rendered um interiors in your film that that did such a nice job of of feeling tech of, of creating texture creating a kind of visual um a visual dirt that you could feel in a way thank you yeah john john schwartzman and i longtime dp we've worked together several times we um we were on the same page very early on with that and we were very happy with the look of the movie. How long did you prep? Um, I want to say maybe 10 to 12 weeks. Uh -huh. I remember Denzel, when Denzel said yes, we had a, we were going to, he had a start date in mind because he wanted to do Macbeth first and then direct a movie he's about to direct right now or is directing right now. And then do this. And I said, that's fine. I'll wait. I can, I can stay busy. And then he came back a week later and said, what if I did Macbeth and then we put this between before I direct the movie? And I said, that's good too. And I told him, as long as I have, you know, 12 weeks, I've got my same crew. We can get on the same page pretty quickly um, and get to work. And then it came back and he said, what if, let's do this before I do the other two all together. And I said, great. Okay. And next thing you know, we're in offices at Warner Brothers. Wow. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about, I feel like something that, that I see really um, clearly in the film is, is this thema thematic 
thrust around regret and around guilt and around repair of the past. Was that something as you were writing that you were, I mean, this is almost 30, 20, 28 years ago. Were you aware of how, um, how much that was a theme that was powering the story or was it uh, more instinctual for you at that point? I think it, it was obviously something I thought about, um, you know, just in, to look at obsession and mm. an attempt at redemption and those kind of things, you know, were, were certainly there in my head from, you know, the start. Also, mm. there was something about being in, in Hollywood at that time and being in Los Angeles, the city of angels. And it didn't, you know, Hollywood is far more gentrified now where I lived uh, mm-hmm. than, it, than it was then. But just something about this being the city of angels and all this darkness around it. Um, and so there's, you know, there's certainly a, there's certainly a, a stream or a stream of what is faith and yeah. what is one's existence in the world and this place and what do we owe to ourselves and what do we owe to our fellow man without getting too high and lofty. I mean, there's, you know, like, like a whole lot of movies, there's a, there's certainly a little bit of Christian allegory running throughout it. I mean, you know, you, a man delivers himself to a place to try to save, can't save himself even, but tries to save others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet is, I mean, without giving too much away, is um, is carrying such a burden. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the heartbreak for Joe Deacon, as much as I can find fault with the guy in terms of, you know, how he does things. I have a soft spot for Joe Deacon because I think deep, deep down, he wants to do the right things. He's not always capable of doing that in the uh, correct and legal way sometimes, but he carries this burden and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's never going away. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, it's funny because I also think about this story, obviously, as it relates to the notion of cops and, and detectives and, um, obviously, there's a huge tradition in filmmaking around around the mystery of the detective story. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think the movie is is unpacking something about the mistakes that law enforcement make. Mm-hmm. and and in in the case of the film, without giving anything away, um, it's it's fair to say the mistakes are 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 just giant. <laughs> and so I'm just curious if, if that resonated differently for you when you made the, when you first wrote it in, in terms of how you now think about it now that you've directed it. Yeah, I think it resonates far differently. Obviously, you know, we, we look at any, we look at any movie, no matter when it's, no matter what period it's depiction through a, through a modern lens, where are we mm-hmm. today, you know, on Wednesday and, and looking at this film. And, and that's just the way it is. So certainly, you know, the world has changed. Um, the way we analyze cops and detective work and everything else has changed, both from a societal standpoint and, and what's happening culturally. But also, you know, when I wrote this, there was no CSI. There was no, no first 48 hours. And now we're completely up to speed in terms of crime scenes and forensics and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to, you know, let a lot of that kind of fall away from that first draft way back when, which was, I think, you know, you know, for the good. Right, right. And yet what, by keeping it in that period, it could still be about the, um, 
just the work, the 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 footwork of having to make these connections and and gather the evidence and wait, you know. Yeah, and this is also a time. This is I also like the fact that it was pre Rampart, mm-hmm. pre OJ, that it was pre a whole lot of things that that shook things up for policing, if you will, in Los Angeles. Yes. Yes. Well, there's still the um, the sense of uh, characters in a Wild West landscape that they see themselves that way, whether they're disgraced or not. Um, there isn't there isn't that cultural conversation about um, potentially the fundamental landmines of policing in in our culture today. Um, and so it's interesting to see characters who are suffering guilt, regret, a need for redemption, but then lack the um, lack the sort of self-reflection because it's not there in the culture. It's not coming back to them. That's so it's a, really, it's a really good point. It's a really good point. I think that's the main thing that's changed from when I wrote it to to now. I think it. It adds a chapter, you know, to the characters' lives in this. I hope. Yes. Um, how closely do you, when you and you say you and John Schwartzman have worked many times together? Um, what's that? What's that um, creative relationship like? It's really, really uh, fun. John has a lot of energy and is really talented, um, and also uh, Michael Korenblith, um, you know, our production designer. Has worked. We've worked with him many times. Daniel Orlandi, costumer. We've all worked together so many times. Mm. But prep becomes not only important, like it always is, but really, really fun because mm. we are constantly knocking ideas around together. Because you know our our decisions about palette. Obviously, Michael's chiming in on that, and Daniel is chiming in from a wardrobe standpoint. Mm. So as opposed to everybody going off and making their own movie. And then at the last minute you go, wait a minute, these things don't mesh. They're meshing very early on. And, um, and, it, and it's just really a lot of fun and it helps me. I mean, I learned so much about the movie in prep, you know, oh, yeah. making a decision, even if something as silly as we're down to these two locations, which one do you like better and analyzing what it says for the story. Uh, kind of, it just makes you think of it in a brand new way. Yeah, definitely, and and I do think the notion of of not just the team, but even a team that you carry forward into successive films, I um I see the value of that too, and I do think that the idea that you know everyone works together to think about the impact of color, to think about the impact of light and texture and framing and location. Mm-hmm. Um, it can it can mean a much more sort of unified vision, I think, because all the departments are used to talking to each other. Ab- absolutely, and then we've done so many movies together that Susan Benjamin, art director, uh, she, she and John Schwartzman will go out to the locations once we've chosen them, and especially a movie like this, we wanted to use as much practical lighting as possible. Mm. So you know, there are lots of scenes that she lit with practical lights. You know, John would say, give me this lamp over here, mm. and this and that. And, and so it makes it really fun. And I was curious actually watching the film, if anything was on a set, it felt all very lived in, like everything was on, on at a location. 
Oh, that's 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 great to hear. Um, there's a lot of location work, but uh, Michael Korn bu- bu- built the entire uh, LAPD offices. Oh wow! Um, which are which are spectacular, and and our mantra going into it uh, when everything he was building was uh, ceilings are more interesting than floors. Mm-hmm. So we tried a lot of land lower angles, and you'd see the crossing. And also there was something he did with neon lights where. Hopefully nobody really notices it, but maybe it embeds in your head a little bit. There are just lots of crosses everywhere. The neons, mm. when it goes through the glass, sometimes we'll do that. Mm. Over somebody's head, behind somebody's head. And we knew that going, going in, and it was something we wanted to kind of embrace. Um, yeah. Yeah. The flop house is, um, is on stage. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, that definitely doesn't look like a hotel I'd like to visit anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had to, we had to clean it up a little bit. I think we, we went, went a little too crazy. The first time I walked in, it was like, not even, you know, not even drug addicts would come in and live in here. <laughs> Just too scary, too terrifying. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Um, talk about once actors come into the mix, I always feel like that's another level of uh, creation and, and even, um, for you, a kind of another level at a pass at the script. Um, how, how how did they? How did Denzel and Rami and Jared? How, how did they all um, impact what ends up on screen? Um, in a in a huge way. Um, I mean, once again, it's another chance to learn more about the script that you've invented, you know, and the movie you're going to be directing. Um, just sitting and having long. I mean, I, I set Denzel up in the office, uh, in our prep offices, right next to me. And wow. so come every day, and we would spend hours just talking about stuff, whether it might be what music does Joe Deacon listen to? Um, and just, you know, talking about anything and everything and talking about the scenes and just kind of sneaking up on it in a way. And then by the time you start shooting, you've talked about it all. And, and you know each other's intentions with regard to the scene, which makes it move more smoothly on set. Um, with Rami, same. A lot of time with him. And then I put he, he and, he and, uh, he and uh, Denzel together in a room with me and we went through the entire script, not as a rehearsal, mm. you know, maybe, maybe reading some stuff out loud, maybe not just talking about the scenes and what mm-hmm. they wanted to bring to them. And then you'd make, you know, you'd make adjustments to dialogue, of course, and things like that. Or I would explain why, di- why, why this piece of dialogue was important as it set something up later, et cetera. With Jared, mm-hmm. I also spent a lot of time with him, mm-hmm. tons and tons of hours, but I went to his house to do it because mm-hmm. we made a decision early on, not to bring him into the fold and the, and the three actors all in a room being buddy, buddy. Um, and he said, is it okay if the first time they see me, I'm really Albert Sparma? I mean, of course they had met, you know, years back and things like that, but sure. the very first scene that we shot um, with, with Jared, I believe was when Denzel is looking at his car, Joe Deacon is looking at his car with a flashlight and he comes down and says, can I help you? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the first time he laid eyes on, on Jared in character. Oh, wow. And he had seen Denzel in character. So there's something that's great about that because you don't need a lot of words to sense the two of them looking at each other and kind of smelling one another. Yeah. And it yeah. Just well, put it up the scene. And, and Jared's um, interpretation of this guy is so palpably, um, well, isolated, strange. I I, I want to say uncanny, but I what I really mean I think is that in there there's a loneliness to the character 
that you wonder, does this make him a very, very dangerous person? Um, it remains a question, you know, as you're watching him. But I think, um, yeah, it's, it, that, that, that makes sense to me that you would sort of um, not put him in the room with your other actors until necessary. Yeah, it's, it's, is he dangerous or is he a misfit? Also, I like the idea that Jared and I talked about it a lot. The very first time, well, one of the early times we met, he said, this name, Albert Sparma, that's a lot to carry. And, you know, and I said, well, let me think about it. And he goes, I mean, I'm not saying change it, but just let me wrap my brain around it. And so I thought, well, you know what? Maybe it is a lot to carry. Maybe I'll change it to Albert Parma, mm -hmm. you know, which is a more normal name. And so I came back and pitched that to him. And he said, oh, no, I fall, I've fallen in love with Albert Sparma now. It, it helps me understand my childhood and, and that name and carrying that name. And it's an outside the box name. And, I, you know, it, it, it allows me to have a sense of humor, even though nobody gets my sense of humor. Um, and there were days when we'd be on a location somewhere way off in the valley. And I would see Jared walk around in character and nobody knew who he was. Yeah. He'd be talking to, you know, sometimes extras, sometimes people that were just there on the street watching. And he was just Albert Sparma. Yeah. And he, what he was doing was he was seeing how offensive he was. And because he was trying to be really sweet and nice. You know, I get into a lovely day today. Are you enjoying watching? And he would see people kind of move off the sidewalk to go around him. And, you know, and then, then the occasional oddball would go, you're a cool dude. Let's talk. Yeah. We're <laughs> <laughs> worried about that guy. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's interesting because he does have a very. Um, yeah, there, there's a quality to him that's that's unhinged, but you, it's hard to understand really why. And I'm curious when when he approached that role on the page was it something you and he saw right away or was it um i guess what i mean is when you wrote the role did you understand that the character was meant to just radiate um weirdness or was that a choice do you know what i mean i would say i took it part of the way there I mean, uh -huh. there was a certain kind of macabre humor uh on the page but I think he's, he's very he, funny. I, I think he's yeah, quite funny. Yeah. Um, and, and Jared just went to town on that. And yes. so there were certain times when I, I would tell him, you know, a line's written. I said, we'll, we'll do it as written, but, you know, bring in. And he'd come up with a little, his little three by five cards and go through other possible lines for that line. And we would just try it different ways. And I have to say that, you know, several of his lines that are just odder and better are in the movie. That's really great. That's really great. Um, was it always called The Little Things? It was. It was. I don't remember if I, I, I'm pretty sure I called it The Little Things as I was writing it and came, since it was dialogue that I already mentioned it, I thought, well, people do that sometimes and this doesn't seem ill-fitting to me at all. And it feels like The Little Things could refer to several different things uh, in the movie. And so I kind of always liked the, 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 the omnibus feeling of the of the title mm -hmm. it's funny because somehow i thought about the title watching the film when denzel when he goes to see i presume his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend and then there's a moment um you understand it's a charged relationship and he he walks away and he he kicks at the mulch that had probably just been laid down by this 
woman's new partner, presumably. And I, I felt like, oh, that's the kind of little thing that tells me a lot about that relationship, tells me a lot about him. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting to think about that in terms of just filmmaking generally, like how much it's so important to pay attention to details. It, that was a scene, I, I like that scene a lot. Um, and it was a scene that some people early on said, we don't really tell much about Joe Deacon in the past. It's referenced that he, you know, his problems from the past. And of course, there are, you know, little snippets of flashback that so, show one specific incident. But I always liked that scene and, and kept it in because it gave you a glimpse into a very different Joe Deacon's life. Because yep. we've seen him out in his, um, you know, in his place in the middle of the desert, which looks like a place you disappear to, where you don't want anybody knocking on the door. And then you see this beautiful little home and his beautiful ex-wife. And they talk about daughters that are grown and doing well and are adults. And you go, it's hard to imagine that Joe Deacon used to live here and be happy. Mm -hmm. and, it, that, and I don't know, it just said something to me, even though it kind of broke our rules, if you will, of we're not going to go back and show a bunch of, um, you know, Sparma's past or, or anybody. Right. I, I like the scene for that. And it's very spare. I mean, yeah. you say a lot, put those two actors on the lawn together and realized they were once together and lived in this house. That's kind of the message. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm curious, when you were writing it 28 years ago versus making the film now, was it important to you to reference other films in, in talking about how you were conceiving of it or how you were prepping for it? Or um, did, you, did you do that then or did you do that now? And or, I guess. I, a little of both, but the now would be, we want to make sure not to lean too heavily this way because then it's reminiscent of a movie, you know, mm -hmm. that's already been made, but that was made after I wrote the script. And so right. you, didn't, you didn't want to lift or, or take, pay homage to anything that's, that's happened between the time I wrote the script and making the movie now. But I have to say that I, you know, when I wrote the script, I remember being a big fan of, you know, I, I love crime drama. I love uh, psychological thrillers. But I kind of felt like in the 80s, um, they had become a little paint by number. I mm -hmm. mean, obviously, Silence of the Lamb was not 91, and that's magnificent and all that. Yep. Um, but uh, some of the other ones where you'd have the first two acts felt like that they were far more interesting to me than the third act. Mm -hmm. The first act being misdirects and clues and learning who these people are and horrible things are happening. And then by the end of the second act, you would identify the bad guy, mm -hmm. and then uh, the good guy, you know, the good guy would mm -hmm. give chase, and it usually was some kind of action set piece uh, or something right. like that. And then you would have, oh, the, the, you know, the, the good guy's in trouble, the, the bad guy's going to win, and then the good guy wins, you know, in a heroic fashion, you know, dispatching the bad guy in some odd, new, different way. And I, for me, at least, I always thought that even though that was the formula that had been used over and over again successfully, it just felt less interesting to me. So it became a question of, can you both embrace and subvert a genre without, mm -hmm. and subvert it without thumbing your nose at an audience, um, making it non-formulaic, but hopefully just as satisfying, if not more satisfying. So I remember thinking about that when I was coming up with the story. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that was part of your question, but. <laughs> no, no, it is, it is. And it actually, it, because I mean, again, I don't want to give away too much um, plot, but there's a, there's some very interesting developments in the story and it's, um, 
it speaks to that notion of subversion um, or or transgressing the genre and heading into new territory or unexpected territory, which you know you could argue kind of mirrors something that's happening to the character as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that that's very interesting. Very interesting. I'm curious also to hear then after having this script be written and percolating, but not getting made for however many years. Um, and then you, ha- you were able to make it one, what were challenges you couldn't have anticipated or foreseen. And then on a, you know, for all of our, our viewers who um, have been going through the same year of catastrophe as we have, what's it like to release a film um, in this moment? For the first part of your question, I would say the unexpected, it's, I wouldn't know if it's a difficulty, but it was surprising to me when you sit down to in prep and you're talking about actually making a movie that you wrote 28 years before and that is kind of almost been made a few times. I didn't realize that in my head, somewhere in the recess of my brain, I had directed it already. Mm. I, you see it when you write it, but then it was always percolating in there. And so I would have very specific ideas about it. And sometimes then I would have to go, well, that doesn't really work anymore. I like this mm. better. And the odd thing was when, you would, when we would finish a scene and we'd go, okay, that was, that was great, I think. And we're going to move on to the next scene. I realized that there was completion to it that mm. was 28 years in the, in the making, 27, mm. 28 years in the making. And I went, oh, I never have to direct that scene again in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, was un, that was unexpected. Um, in terms of the pandemic question, <laughs> as this went on, I mean, there was a part of the pandemic happening that was actually good for us in the movie in that we had, I'd finished my director's cut and really was just about to be ready to show the director's cut. Um, and we were fortunate that we finished filming before the shutdown. Um, but then what happened was then when Warner Brothers was shut down and the, my editor, Rob Frazen, would work at his house and I would, they set us up with something for we could, you know, mm-hmm. look at each other's work and which is never as good as being in a room for me. It's just so hard. I, I think it's so, I, I'm such a diehard sitting in my, sitting in the cutting room with my editor and watching it together and talking it through. It's hard. It's hard because also you can just go when you're sitting there, you know, with your feet kicked up on the couch and Rob's there working, you can go just for grins, cut eight frames off that. I know it's silly, but that little tiny part of a blink bothers me. You do that kind of stuff constantly, which is great. And I love Yes. And you're relaxing enough in space, in the space together that you also can have the moments perhaps of just like, wait a second. I, 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 you know, you get the, you can get struck by lightning and, and which isn't to say that you're not going to get struck by lightning over some no. newfangled technology that we're using now, but it, it just feels like it's a little bit of a more circuitous path to getting struck by lightning, you know? I agree. And I don't know about you, but it, I, you know, I put, we put cards and pictures from all the scenes up on the walls. Yes. I can tell you how many times I'm just standing there, just walking around looking, look, look, yes. while Rob's playing with something or whatever. And then I'll go, these two scenes need to be flipped. Yes. And I, I think I would have come up with that in my office, you know, using yes. the remote. Um, well, and it's, 
you know? It's, it makes me think too, that it's kind of interesting that you were faced with a new way of cutting the film. Mm-hmm. We're craving some analog um, tools yeah. and you were making a movie about an a-, a more analog world. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a, a kind of interesting dilemma to be facing as a filmmaker. I'm not sure I wanted it to be 1990, but I would have settled for five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> for, for sure. For yeah. sure. But the, uh, the other thing is that was, that, well, I said the, the part of it wasn't bad for the film was that when everything shut down, nobody knew what was going to be happening now. Right. And all our schedule went out the window. And so what happened is then mm-hmm. I was able to, instead of doing a director's cut and having a preview and two previews or whatever, and then moving hard toward that date when you're locking picture and all that, everything just slowed and we just kept working. Mm-hmm. So you know, I was able to take, okay, here's one cut and I want to show it to five friends and get all their notes. Right. And then I would take those notes and we would work for several days and then we would have another cut. And I go, I'm right. going to pick five different friends now to watch the film and then get their notes. And by the end, you get this weird kind of consensus of what the problems are and hopefully yep. you're solving them along the way. So that part of the process was really kind, kind to us. Also, you know, not having to preview. I know that we learned a lot from test audiences, but not having to preview, I have to say, you know, help me sleep better. Oh, of course. And, and, and I mean, I think everybody has different relationships to the previewing process, but the more narratively uh, challenging or ambiguous, or um, I want to say morally ambiguous a story is, I think the harder it is um, it can be a harder process to preview. So I could see a feeling of freedom in not having to go through that. Well, when they had the preview set, I remember telling Mark Johnson, our producer, I said, here's the thing, at least a third of the audience is just not going to be on board with this being a non-formulaic third act. I'm not saying mm-hmm. non-formula, I'm not saying that formulaic stuff is bad. Sometimes it's awesome. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is not formulaic. So yeah. I think there'd be a third of the audience that says, how dare you ask questions that, and not give me the answers? Yes. You know, and so I, like I said, I didn't, um, I didn't lose any sleep over losing this previous. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I, I, I like movies that ask questions and then demand of the audience to sort of start filling in the blanks when the screen goes to black. So um, I appreciated that so much about your film. Um, We are out of time. That flew by. Um, And thank you for doing this. And also thank you for, uh, again, for Destroyer, because I love the movie so much. And I remember seeing it and just at the end of it, which is, you guys, you pulled off just something that's kind of magical at the end that I didn't see coming and you did it in such a great way. But oh, I remember sitting there in the dark for like five minutes, just going, it was just running around in my head in all the best ways, so. Oh, that is a very kind thing to say. And I can't say, uh, I, I, I just, I, I can't say how much I appreciate that. That's so sweet. Um, good luck with the film. Good luck with the newfangled way that it's reaching people. Um, I'm sure it's going to. And um, I hope that through all of it, um, you also managed to have fun and kind of delight in the fact that you made a movie <laughs> and it's getting released. <laughs> it's, not, it's not out how we thought it would be out yes. with the streaming component, but we live in strange times. So I've got, you know, friends in other parts of the country that are going to theaters to see it. So 
that's amazing. Great. And for people uh, like us here that you know don't have the, aren't afforded that that chance to see it, I I, I hope not yet. Not I mean, yet. Not yet. Yes. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> We're going to be back in theaters soon. 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 <laughs> Not soon enough, but soon. Yeah, exactly. John, it was such a pleasure to talk with you. Karin, thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Fisher Stevens, George C. Wolfe, and Paul Greengrass. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 